uh, Mike Pence made headlines when he announced that the members of the newly created branch of the American military, uh, the Space Force, will be referred to as Guardians. So in his official announcement, Pence told reporters that soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians will be defending our nation for generations to come. Now, when I heard the news of that, I must confess, it is hard to ignore the sci-fi flavor of Space Force and this new title of Guardians being given to the members of it. But given the way that our nation has become so dependent on satellites and GPS for the smallest things, and with the recent efforts being made by other rival nations to try to dominate space, uh, maybe it's a more appropriate title than we're tempted to give it credit for. A guardian's role is to protect, keep, and defend something that's precious. It's the role that Paul commissioned Timothy to uphold when he wrote to him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when he said, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now the fact that Paul then went on to tell Timothy to entrust that same pattern to other faithful men who were called to... uh, it, we, we realize that um, that that call is the call of every pastor, and by extension, the call of the local church itself. That the call is to guard the precious truth of the gospel against every form of corruption, seeking to see Christ glorified through the announcement of His death, of His resurrection, as He works in and through us to save the lost. So Christians are called to be guardians of the gospel. And this morning, we're beginning a new series through the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul wrote this letter uh, as a letter to a set of churches who were under distress with one big goal, an appeal to them to cling to the same gospel that he then later commissioned Timothy to guard. The gospel and the churches in Galatia had come under assault by a certain heresy that was denying the fundamental doctrine of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, there are nuances to this heresy, which we'll look into as we make our way through this letter over spring into the summer. But it will be helpful for us in this series to remember that first and foremost, guardianship of the gospel was the main driver that Paul had when he took up a pen to write to these churches. Now, as Paul went about uh, defending the gospel that he had received and which he then preached throughout the entire Roman Empire, he unpacks some basic but essential truths about what that gospel is, which in turn helps us to understand better the gospel itself. So if we are called to be guardians of the gospel, then we need to have an accurate understanding of what that gospel is. And as our understanding of the gospel grows, I think we will find, in fact, that God is working in us through the gospel to keep and guard us. So it's for this reason that I am so excited to be starting this new book with you today. Uh, Just as a brief introduction, uh, Paul, as I said, wrote this letter uh, to the churches of Galatia, most likely sometime around 48 AD, a long time ago. Um, but he wrote them to churches who are in modern, who would be located in what we know now as modern-day Turkey. Uh, Galatia was really more of a region than a place, which makes it a little difficult to determine exactly which churches uh, 
Paul had in mind, whether they were located in the northern area of Galatia or if they were in the region of the southern area. Um, in doing the research, which you are welcome to do, I think the evidence has, seems to be stacked slightly in favor of southern Galatia, which means that Paul wrote this letter likely to the churches in the cities that he and Barnabas uh, had gone through on their first missionary journey, uh, which included uh, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, which you can read about in Acts 13 through 14. So if you're looking for something to supplement, if you want to have a better grasp on who Paul wrote these letters to, uh, you can read Acts 13 and 14 to get a better understanding. Now, this was an area that was colonized by the Romans. Uh, retired soldiers were... Uh, awarded land in the places that Rome conquered in like places like Galatia. And that meant that there was a lot of Roman influence here, a lot of Roman favor. And besides that, we know that there was a significant Jewish population in that area as well. So it was a diverse place. It was a place that was in the center of the comings and goings of the world, and it was significant. Now this morning we're going to be looking at Paul's opening greeting to these churches in Galatia. And uh, as we do, we're going to find really the whole letter could be crammed into five verses. We could understand the entire message of the book of Galatians within this introduction. So this is heavy, this is rich, and it's glorious. So I would ask that you go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word, or I'll be reading Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, in his commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther remarks that to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. And I think he's right. Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia because they were struggling, doubting, and in some cases giving into the attraction that came with a certain line of thinking which added works of the law to a gospel of grace. If we are to be guardians of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must be anchored in this reality that the only way to be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To compromise that conviction is to abandon the precious truth that has been entrusted to us. So it's a task, then, that requires our vigilance. Because it's a truth that has been under attack, under assault, we see, since before 48 AD when Paul wrote this letter. Well, the main idea of our text this morning is very simple. It is the main thrust, I think, of this book, which is simply this. Guard the gospel of the cross. Guard the gospel of the cross. What I want to do in our time this morning is outline for you four priorities for why we must diligently guard this message of salvation. We must guard this message because it's in this gospel of the cross, first, that we see we receive a new identity of allegiance to the risen Christ. 
Second, it's in the gospel that we receive grace and peace from God. Third, we see that in the gospel we receive deliverance from this present evil age. And fourthly and finally, in the gospel we see God receives glory forever and ever. So I want to begin by explaining each one of these reasons and then as a commissioning really to you of why you are called to be a guardian of the gospel. So first, we are to guard this gospel because we see it's in this gospel we receive a new identity of allegiance to the risen Christ. Now Paul begins this letter sort of in the way we'd expect him to. If you've read the New Testament at all, uh, you come to expect a certain way that Paul would write to the churches that he was, um, he was seeking to, to convey his message to. He begins by introducing himself, and then he follows with the similar pattern of the way he usually does his other letters. But as we do, we realize that he emphasizes here first his apostleship. His first words in this letter are, Paul, an apostle. Now, the word apostle simply describes someone who has been sent to speak on behalf of another. They're a representative commissioned in a special way to bear a message. But when you see this word used in the New Testament, it's most often referring to a very particular and exclusive office within the early church, which included the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus and Paul. Apostles carried a unique sort of authority. With the exception of Paul, all of the apostles had been Jesus' close disciples during his ministry. They had all witnessed his appearance to them after his resurrection. And they were equipped in a unique way by the Holy Spirit to serve the church and to preach the gospel, even doing so with some really astonishing miracles, which you can read about in the book of Acts. Now, the office of apostle was very unique in the early church itself, and contrary to what uh, some groups argue, it was exclusive to those particular men. That apostolic authority is, in the words of Tom Schreiner, enshrined in their writings. And while there is a sense in which we are all called and sent to take the good news to the world, as the apostles were, no person today has the sort of authority that Paul and the other apostles, uh, the other 12 apostles had. As a church... We affirm in our statement of faith that the rule and, and authority for all for our faith and for all of our practice is Scripture alone. We measure everything we say and everything we do by the standard of God's authoritative word. Now, Paul, in this letter, sort of flashes his apostolic badge with a pretty unique statement here in verse 1. He says that his apostleship was not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, if your ears are kind of perking up here, if Paul sounds a little defensive, then you've heard him rightly. None of Paul's other letters open up with such a strong assertion of his authority as an apostle, or by asserting that origin of his apostleship with so much, uh, with so much oomph. The reason for that, as we will see as we get further into his letter, even into just verse 6, is that Paul was frustrated with the Galatians and he was concerned with the direction they were going in. Certain teachers had infiltrated the church who were teaching a different gospel, a false gospel. They were dangerous usurpers trying to woo the believers in these churches and to embrace an attractive but deadly lie. 
While these men claimed to be defenders of the truth, they were really wolves who were trying to prey on the flock of Christ. So as an apostle, Paul had a responsibility to wield his authority in defense of these churches. And he does that here. That's why we find, uh, as we get into this letter, he has strong words. Words that are meant to accomplish two purposes. First, to call the flock of Christ back into the safety of his fold, and then also to drive these wolves off. The men who were troubling the churches in Galatia were not going to be driven off easily. They challenged even uh, the Galatians' confidence in Paul's message by resorting to challenging his apostolic authority, which explains why Paul goes into detail from the very beginning of this letter and then on in chapter 2 about how God saved him and then called him to this office. Paul doesn't announce his apostleship because he's trying to make himself look good. He's not boasting in himself here. He does it, we see, in defense of the authority of the gospel he had been commissioned to preach and to guard. Contrary to the way we saw John when we were looking at 2 John uh, address the church uh, very gently, encouraging the elders of the church uh, by calling himself an elder, we see Paul just flat out fires both barrels here, identifying himself as an apostle who was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. Paul is not messing around here. He's on a rescue mission. And so from the start, we find him defending the message he had received by appealing to the authority of the one who had called him to preach it. Now, it's only natural that you would expect Paul's rivals trying to undermine his message by attacking his authority authority in particular. Uh, Paul's apostleship was very unique and different from the way that Christ had called the other apostles. Um, by his own description in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, um, when Jesus appeared to Paul and called him into his office, he, he, Paul says that he was called last of all as one untimely born. Jesus called Paul to this role, not while he was one of Jesus' disciples, but while he was one of Jesus' bitterest enemies. Even so, Paul explained to those Corinthians that by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul's conversion was a stunning act of God's power, which only outshines, which only just slightly outshines his call to be an apostle to the nations. Apostleship wasn't something that he had bestowed on himself any more than his faith in Christ was a result of Paul's own righteousness. All that Paul was was a result of the power of God in the grace of Christ, whereas he worked in him. Paul had authority to speak as an apostle because he had been called to that role, not by men or through men, but through the act of grace of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul is one of, one of the many trophies of God's grace. An enemy who had been transformed into a son. A worker of evil who had become a servant of God. A dedicated hater of Christ to a man who counted his relationship with Jesus as his greatest treasure. We should not wonder so much at Paul when we, as we should wonder at the one who transformed him into what he became. God gave Paul a new identity. He called Paul out of obstinance and rebellion into full-fledged allegiance to the risen Christ. And the grace which called Paul out of, the dark, out of his darkness is the same grace which has called every believer into the light of Christ's salvation. 
As Jesus says in John 6, verses 44 and 45, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, Paul's apostleship, his office of apostleship was unique to him, but the, the grace that called him is the same grace that is called you if you are a believer in Christ. Because the same grace that worked on him works on us, we are told in 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18 that we are all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, Paul emphasized that he had been called to apostleship through Jesus Christ and God the Father out of the gate because his audience was being led astray by people who were asserting a different gospel, not a gospel of grace, but a gospel of enslavement. The point I want to make to you out of what he says in these opening words is this, that the message of the gospel is not a human invention any more than Paul's call to apostleship was on the authority or the work of any mere man. The gospel that we have received is the summary message of how God himself has broken into a world of darkness to save it and to restore it and to establish his people in a right relationship with him. And it all hangs on the linchpin of Jesus' death and resurrection. Notice how Paul emphasizes that there at the end of verse 1. He says, I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. As believers, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the seal of the hope that gives confidence to our faith. From the earliest days, the church has confessed that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose from the dead, after which he ascended into heaven where he sits on the right hand of the Father. Christians are defined by that reality. It's, the, it's become the essential feature of who we are, something that led Paul later in his letter to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you read about the way Paul thought of himself and considered that the same grace that was working in him has been applied to you if you've put your faith in him, it really changes the way that you think about yourself, doesn't it? The most important defining feature of your life is that you are a recipient of the grace of God, which is made possible through the resurrection of your perfect Savior. The, the biggest thing in your life, the most defining thing about who you are, is the grace that has been bestowed on you by a Savior who loves you, who gave himself for you, and then rose victoriously from the dead. That being the case, we must understand that this message trumps every opportunity, every accomplishment, every title, who your parents are, where you were born, the color of your skin, everything. That is the fundamental thing that has brought us together as one body this morning. That's what makes us the church. You're recipients of grace, and that's what binds us together with a, a, 
with, with ropes that can never be broken. It binds us together in one faith under one risen Savior. Now, that unity makes its way into the way Paul greets these churches in Galatia. This letter is obviously from him. He starts off saying his name and his office, it, that, that what he's about to say has apostolic authority. But it's also from the brothers who were with him. Now, it might seem like a very little detail for Paul to throw in that, that these brothers are with him. But that line adds to the authority of what Paul's written. This, this, this letter isn't one man's opinion. It also carried the concern of other believers who were committed to the same truth that Paul was, not because they were followers of Paul, but because they were followers of Paul's Lord, Jesus Christ. Because we are all recipients of the same salvation through the same Lord, we find ourselves linked in a unique fellowship within a local community, the church, and within the greater community, the big, the big C church. If you're a member of that, then the thing that fundamentally makes you a member of this local body is that you have an enduring relationship with Jesus as a result of God's grace. And you are also a member of a global body of Christ, irrespective of time and space. Now, I hope that as you consider the way that Paul emphasizes this new identity of allegiance to the risen king, you feel a real sense of joy and awe about how precious that really is. I also want to impress on you the weight of concern that, that we're therefore called to have and to share as we think about our fellow brothers and sisters, the way that the churches who were with Paul were concerned about the churches who were in Galatia. The identity that we have in Christ as part of his kingdom and his body here on earth means that we need to have a true regard for the well-being and the faith of others. And that leads us to two important applications of this point. First, if you are a believer in Christ, praise God. But if you are a believer and you're not a member of a local church, you need to join. You need to identify with the local visible manifestation of Christ's body here on earth. It's really sort of self-defeating to say that if you love that you love Christ but you don't want to be a part of who he loves, his bride. It's it's hard to say that you really love your brothers and your sisters but you don't want to be committed to the hard work of living in a community with them in the local church. So, let this be a a, a call to join if you're not already. The second, if you're a believer and you are a member of this church, then don't get caught up in, in that identity so as to forget that we're to be concerned about what God is doing here and abroad. Each week, we pray for a different missionary partner. Pray for those missionary partners, but pray for their churches too. Those are our brothers and our sisters as well. And we need to make sure that we think about them accordingly because that's part of embracing this new identity that's become ours in this gospel. So we're called to stand by this gospel because we receive a new identity through it. We're also called to stand by this gospel because it's in this gospel that we receive grace and peace. As, guardian, as a guardian of the gospel uh, that he had received, Paul's main desire for the churches in Galatia was that they would have the same grace and peace that he himself had. And in the second part of verse 2, he says, To the churches of Galatia, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if Paul says anything in this letter to expose the motives of why he wrote this, it's this. He wanted them to have the grace and the peace of God that he had for themselves. The peace he desired for them is not unlike the theme of rest that we saw when we were in the book of Joshua. It's the sort of peace that comes, the rest that comes, when God's people are united to him in a relationship of love the way we were created to have. The story of redemption is the story of how God secures rest and peace for his people. Isaiah 52 verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Well, it probably doesn't surprise you that Paul wanted the churches in Galatia to experience the grace and the peace that comes from God. Uh, Your ears should perk up a bit as he goes into detail about how God the Father has secured that peace and that grace through the sacrifice of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. In verse 4, Paul says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of, of our God and Father. Though each person, and each and every person, is born in the image as a bearer of the image of God, with the purpose of being a reflection of the beauty and the excellence of him. Since Adam and Eve sinned, that image has become marred and polluted by an an innate desire for sin. We are not born naturally at peace with God. We have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God's perfection. Peace with God, therefore, comes through the grace of God, but that grace has to be purchased at a high cost. The cost of the blood of Jesus. Notice how Paul explains in true Trinitarian fashion that the the relationship of God the Father and God the Son and how they work together to secure the grace and the peace that Paul so wanted the Galatians to have for themselves. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sin to deliver us according to the will of God, of our God and Father. Now, John 3, 16 and 17 puts it like this. It says, For this is the way in which God loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Paul's desire is in alignment with the will of God the Father who sent the Son, who freely gave himself as the sacrifice which pays for our sin, which had, which had, been, which had made us his enemies. With that secured, grace flows freely from the throne of God, and peace is given to all who clothe themselves with his righteousness by trusting in him for their salvation. I want you to catch something about the way Paul credits God's grace in Christ for the peace that believers have with him. He doesn't mention works of the law here, does he? That's important because the whole goal that Paul has for this letter is to see that the Galatians receive the grace and the peace that God has secured for them in Christ. And he knows that the only way they can have that peace and that grace is through the cross of Christ. As we press on into this letter, we're going to become better acquainted with the other gospel, the false gospel that was infiltrating the churches in Galatia. 
But suffice it now to say that the gospel that was being preached there by those who were troubling these churches was a gospel that had traded a grace, traded grace for law and the cross for comfort. A crossless gospel is a graceless gospel. And a graceless gospel is a damning gospel. The struggle going on in Galatia was not over theological nuances. It was over people's souls. And so it stands that as a church, we must always contend for the gospel of the cross of Christ. Thirdly, we are called, we've seen how we are called to be guardians of the cross and why. The third reason that we are to be guardians of this gospel is that it's in this gospel, this gospel of the cross, that we receive deliverance from the present evil age. Now, later this week, as we prayed about just a few minutes ago, President-elect Joe Biden is scheduled to be sworn in as the 46th President of the United States. So we find ourselves in the middle of a transition of power between two administrations with very different goals. It's an odd place to be because we're waiting for a handover to happen. And in one sense, it's already here. But in another sense, it's not here in its fullness, at least not yet. Now, that concept might be helpful for us as we make, try to make sense of the second part of verse 4 when Paul says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. In Romans 5, 12-14, Paul explains that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world as a ruling force and death entered with it. And so we see that death spread from Adam to all men and all women because all men and women have sinned. That rule was challenged with the entry of Jesus Christ into the world. And it was broken when he went to the cross. Death reigned through the sins of Adam. But grace reigns now through the free gift of Christ's righteousness. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 7 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we are, in a sense, between two administrations, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. But ever since the cross, the power of Satan has been broken and the throne of Christ has been established. And yet we live in a time of waiting. Having been rescued from this present evil age, we still wait for what Christ inaugurated on the cross. For when the day when that will finally and fully be fulfilled as he completes his work of making all things new again. As one commentator puts it, the the world in its present form is passing away. Jesus reigns in the present evil age and his rule will reach its climax in the age to come so that in the coming ages, all will marvel over the grace of God displayed in Jesus Christ. So 
God, in his mercy, has not only delivered us from our sins, he has delivered us from a bad administration, an evil administration, the administration of Satan. And he has granted pardon and sanctuary to all who fly to Christ. And he has secured for them a hope of a better world. As we will see, the error of the false gospel that was infecting the Galatians was that it required believers to put their hope in the wrong age, the age of the law. Whereas the true gospel preached by Paul was intended for the age of grace, for the age of Christ's kingdom. So the book of Galatians is a warning for them. It was a warning for them, but it's a warning to us not to return to old ways, but to press forward under the administration of grace that flows from the throne of Christ. Now, though he is defeated... The prince of darkness, Satan, wages a war of attrition against God's people. And he regularly sets snares, tempting us towards confidence in a works-based righteousness, or tempting us instead to take God's grace for granted, giving free reign to the passions of our sin. That's only further complicated at, at, at the debate that goes on within the church, even today, about the relationship between believers and the law. Now, the churches of Galatia fell into a dangerous position when they lost sight of the way that Christ rescued his people from this present evil age. The gospel that they found so appealing wasn't leading them into a deeper relationship with God. It was leading them back into enslavement under the law. Guardians of the gospel must recognize how how easily we can be tempted to rely on our works, on what we have done for a right standing before God, rather than grace, which Christ has secured for us. When the generation of the Israelites that God delivered out of Egypt came to the doorstep of the promised land, they chose instead to try to return back back to Egypt because they were afraid. They reverted back to old ways. They said it would be better for us to go be slaves than to enter that land. And this is the warning because as we will see The Galatians fell prey to a similar trap. And so will we if we are not careful. Christ has delivered us from this evil age. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. And if we are not diligent to defend this gospel, we may find ourselves wandering down a path back to that old age of enslavement which Christ died to save us from. Beware then, measuring your worth before God by any means other than the grace of Jesus Christ and his cross. Now fourthly, we find that we are called to defend this gospel because it's in this gospel that God receives glory forever and ever. Have you ever been told the harsh reality that you are not the center of the universe? uh, Actually, Justin told us that this morning. So if you're in the prayer time, you heard it. If you haven't been taught that yet, let me just tell it to you now. You are not the center of the universe. Several years ago, Ellie and I took a trip to the other side of the world. We spent some time in one of the largest cities in the world. 27 million people? Yeah, it's huge. There were new sites, new customs, new foods, new smells, new people. Spending time in a, in a place as a foreigner, it's actually, it's very enlightening. It will open your eyes to things that you take for granted. There are, all, there are all these things in our lives that feel like such a big deal because they affect our lives directly. 
And when you're locked into that mindset, you just kind of assume that everybody else cares about those things that are important, or at least they should, because, well, they're, they're important to you. Well, it hit me one day while we were walking around how really small I am. I thought to myself, you know, these people have lived their lives up to this point with no idea that I even existed. I've lived my entire life not knowing that they existed. And, and I started to see my life for the vapor that it is. It's here for a moment, gone the next. And I must confess, it was a little unsettling. It made me feel a little weak in the knees made me hungry for something that would last, for something that was significant. It made me thankful for this gospel because this gospel, the gospel of the cross, takes our eyes and it sets them on an eternal glory, the glory of God. This message gives a life, no matter how short, no matter how simple, no matter how seemingly insignificant uh, it makes it have an in, indeterminate value because it wraps that life up within the exaltation of the God of the universe. Before Paul launched into a full-out engagement of false ideas and false teachers that had infected a church and churches that he loved, he took time to remind his readers of their purpose. What is the chief end of man? The chief purpose of man? Anybody want to answer that? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How fitting it is after reading about how Jesus gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present age according to the will of God, of our God and Father, that Paul then stopped and ascribed glory and said to him, be glory forever and ever. Amen. You could close the book right there and you would be edified. A corrupt gospel that has removed the centrality of the work of Christ on the cross and has diminished his glory is not worthy of your affection. A gospel that removes the cross of Christ it's an assault against the glory of God. God is the one who has initiated this work of salvation, and only God can see it through. That's why Paul felt so strongly about this false gospel that was being preached in these churches. It diminished the glory of his beloved Lord, our Father, and that simply will not do. Tom Schreiner again notes, as believers, we need to be Christ-centered God-focused and spirit-filled. We must, we must focus not on human beings first and foremost, but on God himself. We love other human beings most when we do everything for God's glory and praise. So the engine which must drive the heart of every believer and the pursuit is the very pursuit of the glory of the name of Christ. The message of the cross leads to this sort of exaltation which is due to the Son of God. It is not overstating it to say, as John Piper has put it, that the blazing, the cross is the blazing center of the glory of God. Because it's in the cross that the perfection of God's justice, of His love, of His mercy, and of His power are put on display for all to see. And it's for the cross that we will exalt Christ in eternal ecstasy proclaiming forever in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So I want to end this morning with a, a bit of an appeal to you to set this gospel before your eyes this week. If there's anything that's going to guide you through the events that this week has, I have no idea what that's going to be. It could be great. It could be awful. This will see you through. It's this gospel that takes our eyes from the muck and the mire of this world and lifts it to the glory of heaven. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the joy of this gospel, let me invite you to come and to meet the king who loves you and gave his life for you and rose from the dead and rules and reigns to deliver you from this present evil age. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, what more can we say to you today than to you who are worthy of our praise and our adoration and the glory of the universe? To you be the praise and the love of our hearts. Father, you looked on us in our weakness and rather than casting us away, you chose to show the power of your glory and the power of your love for Christ by sending him to become our Savior, our King, our Lord, to send him to a cross and then from a cross to a tomb and then from a tomb you raised him and have set him in glory. Father, if there's anything that's going to give significance to our lives, it's that. Because it's that work that has made us one with him that has made us brothers and sisters together, has made us children of the living God of hosts. And Father, I ask that you would put in us a burning desire to know you better and a steadfast anchor of hope that you have in what you have accomplished through Christ. We love you, and we pray that that love would motivate us in all that we do this week. We ask this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.